We're going to continue our study of Meseches Megillah, page 13b. And here, now that Haman has in private plotted his annihilation of the Jewish people, he decides to put his plans into action. And the interesting thing is that this conversation takes place on the 13th day of Nisan, a full 11 months before the actual day slated for the annihilation of the Jewish people, which is the 13th day of Adar. And the question was, why is Haman running to the king to get his plan going, literally uh, the day or days after he's risen to his position? Why not first cement his position? Why not first ensure that he's really in power? And eventually he'll deal with his Jews. Anyway, he has a date set aside. He's prepared for his annihilation. Why introduce it to King Ahasuerus a full 11 months prior to when it's actually necessary? And the Mepharshim tell us something very interesting. That Haman, as a raving anti-Semite, did not only want to see the Jewish people dead, he wanted to see them squirm. He wanted to see us suffer. As some of the Mepharshim put it, he wanted to see us live a hopeless life, dying slowly. A little bit every day and he figured that once he'd get his plan together eventually the plan would get out slowly as he wanted it to the rumors would begin to filter the people would live with anxiety and fears and doubts and then at some point it will become official knowledge and the Jewish people would be walking around with a target on their back they'd be abused by all kinds of people because you're slated for death anyway just like the Jews were abused in 1938 in Germany and then the cherry on the top would be the full annihilation of the Jewish people in one day across the entirety of Ahasuerus' empire or kingdom. That's the plan. That's the plan. So how do you do this? So he's got to get Ahasuerus. He's going to marshal every bit of charisma and ability and wherewithal to make sure that Ahasuerus is prepared to go along with this. You see, at the end of the day, Ahasuerus is going to be the one to supposedly pull the trigger. Haman can't, can't blame anybody. He's the king. The buck stops with him. He's the boss. And Ahasuerus has other concerns. Yes, he's a raving anti-Semite, but he also has a kingdom to keep together and an empire to lead. Mm -hmm. And the economy is part of it, and the Jewish people could easily have been seen as part of the engine that drives the economy. No king is going to be happy about hearing such a thing. And so, as many, many of those later on in history, Haman sets out to make the case. And the Gemara, on the bottom of page 13b, begins with the following words. So Haman says, Yeshnoi am echad. Now he begins his presentation. And this is in the third chapter of the Megillah, in the eighth verse. Haman begins the presentation. He says, Ta'achashverosh, after they Soon they'll sit down for lunch, but first they're having a power meeting. And he says to him, There is one nation. That's how he introduces the conversation. We'll talk about this nation. So the Gemara says, Omar Rava. Rava said, He said, I want you to know. You should know something about Haman. That Haman was an individual who was Leka the Yod Lishna Bisha. Nobody knew how to slander like Haman knew how to slander. He was the master of what they call the evil tongue. Def master of defamation. Now, of course, what does this mean? And why does Rava begin by emphasizing, before he tells us what Haman said, his first introduction to kind of teaching us how to analyze the words of Haman is that Haman is the master of defamation. Okay, we'll find it out ourselves. We'll see how he defames the Jewish people. What does this mean? What does this mean when we say, Leka the Yod Elishna Bisha? Nobody knew how to slander like Haman knew. So the Mepharshim explain it in a number of ways. First of all, the Sifzichon says that Haman's slander was on multiple levels. First of all, he portrayed the Jewish people as being rebellious against God and those who had abandoned their faith and their covenant. And he also presented them as miserable human beings, being bad for others. Now, historically, we've been depicted one way or the other. 
we've been depicted as loyal to God, but bad for humanity, or bad for God, but good for humanity. That's how it is like in today's day and age. But Haman wanted to make sure that he covered all his bases. So he said, they're not religious anyway. They don't follow the laws they're supposed to. They will not have the protection of the God. He knew that Achashverosh was a, a, a deeply anxious person who had all kinds of fears and concerns, and he was superstitious, and history does not tell a kind story about those who rose against the Jewish people. Historically, they all fail, and they're all gone. Achashverosh knows this. He's a keen student of history, crazy as a fox, very smart guy. So the first thing Haman has to speak about is how the Jewish people are not really the Jewish people anymore. They're not deserving of God's blessing. And he also speaks about the fact that they make no real contribution to life in the kingdom. You will lose nothing by getting rid of the Jews, he says. Your kingdom, your, your empire will continue to flourish. In fact, it will be even better. That's how the Sif Haman puts it, and that's, a, that's the emphasis of the slander, the double-edged tongue of Haman, in which he attacked the Jewish people, so to speak, on two fronts, understanding both and exploiting both of Ahasuerus' concerns or weaknesses. In a sefer called Tuve HaChaim, he has a very interesting analysis of Haman's words. He says that, as a rule, you cannot deny that the Jewish people have always made contributions. You can't deny that. Some of the people who are defaming Israel today are using Israeli technology to do it. <laughs> That's the latest revelation. They don't even blush, these animals. They don't care. They're using web technology that's made in Israel to defame Israel, to, to, to do things like BDS. These are people who are benefiting from Israeli technology to, for the restoration of their own health a, as they demonize Israel, which once was the Jew amongst the nations, and now Israel is the Jew amongst the nations. Once it was individualized, and now anti-Semitism has metamorphosis into anti-Zionism, anti-Israelism. It's all the same thing. It's all baloney. And you'll come to me and say, but there are so many Jews who buy into this. Yes, so they're self-hating. That's very sad. <laughs> Jews are too blind to see who are so loyal to the golden calf they worship of, of uh, atheistic uh, values and mores of the West and an abandonment of Torah Judaism. Very sadly, they're misguided. And they actually believe that you can make a distinction and differentiation between Israel, between love of Israel, and between the people of Israel and the God of Israel. But really, it's not true. At any rate, so... The Tuve Chaim says like this, if you were Haman, what would you need to do? You can't just outright deny the virtues of the Jewish people. So he says what you would need to do is portray whatever values or good things that the Jewish people had brought to the table as incidental rather than intrinsic. They happen to do a couple of good things. Everybody gets lucky. You know, the clock is, broken clock is right twice a day. So they did a few good things. But intrinsically, there are rotten people. And in this way, he actually talked about the truth. He talked about the truth. He said they have virtues. But the virtues that they have, he said, are incidental. They have demerits. Everybody has them. But this is who they really are. These are defining characteristics. And therefore, because of that, the king doesn't really need them. It would be a good idea to get rid of them. Now, the Yaras Dvash says that of course Haman could not simply hurl open lies and just make up stories about the Jewish people. That wouldn't fly. Ahasuerus was too smart for that. And if a person wants to you know, create and fabricate stories, you could just fabricate endless stories. So what he, what he really did, Haman, was take things which were true, but frame them a certain way. And if you ask me, this is the first documentation of fake news. Because fake news doesn't tell news that doesn't happen. It frames the news. And in, in, in you read two different uh, newspapers, sometimes even the same newspaper that's printed in a different part of the country or in a different country, and the headlines and the storyline are different. Reporting on the facts. But instead of telling you objective reportage, you're reading an editorial. So Haman editorialized. He had his own way of framing what the Jewish people did. Nobody can deny that we're a nation that has survived through thick and thin. Nobody can deny that we're a people that has been persecuted more than any other nation on the face of it. Nobody can deny this. So when a um, 
freshman congresswoman sends out openly anti-Semitic tweets, she gives a, the apology, the yes but. The yes but apology is called fake news because it's taking the facts. So of course I acknowledge the facts, but, but you have to look at the facts in a certain way. And, and what about framing it this way, that way, or the other way? That's really what this is. So the, the whole fake news industry, from the right to the left, are very, very good students of Haman. That's the truth. Now, it's true, Joseph Goebel, Yamach Shemo, a great grandson, spiritual descendant of Haman, he said, if you tell a lie often enough, eventually people will believe it. That's true, but like P.T. Uh, Barnum said, you can fool all the people some of the time and some of the people all the time. But you cannot simply just tell endless lies and expect actually to fool the people. So when Rabbi Lau was here, he told me about a meeting in Davos in Switzerland where, where Arafat got up in front of all the nations of the world and Shimon Peres was just sitting next to him and just demonized Jewish people. Literally just made stories out of thin air. Talking about Israeli warplanes dropping chemicals and radiation on hospitals, killing babies. Like ridiculous things. And unfortunately, Mr. Perez did not defend the Jewish people. He made, like, he made light of it, and he said, ha ha, I thought we came for a, an engagement, and instead we came for a, a fight. Let's not talk about it. And, and he told me, he was looking around the room, and all these people were sitting there shaking their heads. See, he's not denying it. Mm. Okay, fine. So, I mean, like, Arafat Yamachshmok could sell his arsenic, his poison, his baloney to people, but, like, nobody really believes that. I mean, there are f flaming anti-Semites who will buy into that, but normal people can't believe that. So what do you tell a normal person? Well, you have to frame Israel as the aggressor. You tell the story. Look, there was a demonstration. Israeli soldiers shot the demonstrator. Hmm. You forgot to mention that these demonstrators actually came with, with knives and Molotov cocktails and were sending over balloons filled with explosives, hoping that Israeli children will be wounded and killed, that these people actually are, are seen on camera singing and dancing, that if we get through the gate, we literally will cut people's hearts out and eat their livers. The, the, this, is, this is the peaceful demonstrators. But you frame it differently. So, so you frame it a certain way, or you have the, you know, the, the, the cameras will zoom in and you'll see the child facing down a tank. Yeah, sure, what they're not showing you is all the people throwing rocks and Molotov cocktails behind them because you're showing a certain image. This is Haman. This is Hamanic. And to me, this is chilling and kind of even inspiring because it tells us that people have been doing this against our people forever. And guess what? We're still here. Haman isn't. And the Hamans of today will go the same way. But at any rate, that's why Rava introduces this word. It's very important to understand the things that Haman will be mentioning, things that Haman is going to talk about, these are things which are rooted in truth. However, they're twisted beyond recognition. So he turns a caricature out of the truth. And by turning a caricature out of the truth, Haman basically gets his message across that says, <laughs> you don't want these people. This is, this is a, a terrible Travesty, a disaster for Persia. We need to get rid of them. So that's the introduction to, to the Gemara. What does, what, does, um, what does he say? Now this is really interesting because the first thing that Haman says is ta, ta nechalinhu. Let's destroy them. Let's destroy them, he says. Now before he says let's destroy them, before he even talks about why, the first thing he says, let's destroy them. And the fact that he says, let's destroy them, is very, very um, revealing. What does it tell us? What does it tell us about Achashverosh? He was an anti-Semite. He didn't like us. He didn't like Jewish people. You could never come to a person who's feel Semitic and say, let's kill the Jews. And the person who's feel Semitic say, I beg your pardon? Why should we kill anybody? Yeah, kill the Jews. Let's just kill them. Kill the nation. Get rid of them. Annihilation. Wipe them off the face of the earth. And no, 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 person is not going to listen to words like that. So, so why does he begin that way? That tells us something. The fact that he said, let's do this, let's get rid of him, let's annihilate them, tells us that Achashverosh, he could suffer a conversation like this. He had his, his issues, his, his anxiety, his suspicions and fears, but okay, yeah, we could do that, but. So what's the issue? He goes on to say. Now, it's very interesting. This is Chum asked the question, he says, Exactly who was going to make this decision? Haman or Achashverosh? Who makes the decision? Who is the king? Achashverosh is the king. And we know that Achashverosh didn't like people sitting in a seat. 
And we'll find out later when Achashverosh now becomes, when everything turns on his axis, and Achashverosh suddenly says, Haman is after my position. Who is this Haman guy? He says, what should we do for somebody the king wants to honor? And Haman says, mm, the king wants to honor. That means me, of course. Oh, dress him up in royal robes and a crown. And he sees the king's face turning color. So he drops the crown from the rest of his description because why would he say to Achashverosh, hey, let's kill him as if we do this together? That would not serve Haman's purpose as well. So the Sivsir Haman says that if it's Achashverosh's decision, he has what to fear. He will have to take responsibility. The first thing that Haman says, you don't have to take responsibility. I'm in this with you. Fake leaders don't want to take responsibility. Fake leaders always want to have somebody else take responsibility. Who could we blame for the situation? Who can we pawn this off on? Some heads got to roll. A disaster happened, a few heads roll, and the leader comes out looking clean. That's fake leadership. Also known as political leadership oftentimes in the Western world. Achashverosh did not want to handle this hot potato himself. And Haman knew that. He says, we're going to do this. All of us. This is going to be done together. And that's why he begins in that pluralistic expression. He says, we will destroy them. So the Gemara says, and Achashverosh responded, and he says, Yeah, I hate Jews, but I'm a little afraid of their God. He doesn't do so kindly with things like this, their God. And, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know, history hasn't dealt kindly with people who try to do stuff like this. So maybe, maybe it's not a good idea. Now, Haman probably expected this. And Haman had his arguments all prepared. And he says, you know, I'm afraid that, uh, afraid of their God, so that he doesn't do to me what's been done to my predecessors. What happened to Achashverosh's predecessors? Going all the way back to the Pharaoh. They got destroyed. I don't want to be destroyed, Achashverosh. I mean, it's a nice thing to talk about. Let's kill the Jews. But like, it doesn't work well. In the end, we'll, we'll be gone. So to this, Haman responds, Omar Lehi says, you're worried about the God? Worried about the God? You have nothing to worry about. Yashno min ha-mitzvahs. When he says, Yeshno am echad, Yeshno, there is one, it really should have said, Yesh am echad. Why does it say, Yeshno? That's an unusual word. And the fact that it doesn't say the word, Yesh, but says, Yeshno, what does this tell us? This tells us that the Haman was trying to say, do not be afraid of their God, they have abandoned him. They're sleeping. They're sleeping at the switches. They're not engaged. So their God won't come after you. So Haman, Ahasuerus says back to Haman, he says, but I mean, they've got some rabbis amongst them. So what does this mean? Well, there's two ways to understand this. Now, if you take a look in Rashi, Rashi says something very interesting. Isbuhud Rabbanan, Rashi says, from Haman's answer, we can understand what Achashverosh was saying because we don't know, we don't really have the details of his conversation. We have to piece the conversation together. And from the fact that he said they're sleeping and then Haman's Achashverosh says, but they have rabbis. So we understand that the issue was that the people had abandoned God. They were vastly assimilated, no longer practicing. He says, but there are rabbis amongst them. So how do we understand the business with their rabbis amongst them? So what if there are rabbis amongst them? It's just a couple of people. So the way the Mepharshim explain it is, one way of explaining it is, it's true, not all of them are, are observing, but there's enough observant Jews to create merit on their behalf. So if we kill all the Jews, we have to kill all the Jews, good Jews, bad Jews, all the Jews. And, event, and even though God feels abandoned by them, there are those who have remained fast those who have remained committed. So that's why God will protect them. Another way of understanding this is, they have rabbis, is that the rabbis will pray. This is the Hasidic way of understanding it. That's how the Tzorid HaChayim says. He says, Yivakshu Aleyhem Rachamim. They'll go to the Rebbes, and the Rebbes will daven, and then Hashem will listen to those prayers. So I guess you could, it's different if you read it as, as um, when he says, Izbuhu Rabbanan, and he says they have rabbis amongst them, do you read it, rabbis or rebbes? If it's rabbis, so they'll bring merit to the Jewish people. 
or they can always bring the Jewish people back around. Somebody's keeping the Torah. Somebody's doing this. How did one um, self-described, um, assimilated, conservative Jew? That's self-described. He sent me an email. And, and the gist of his email was that um, he's very upset with the de demonization of observant Jews because he says, I know they're observing the Torah mitzvahs for me. <laughs> he says, I owe them. I owe them, he says. People like me are not going to produce the next generation of Jews. I, very, I care very much about Jewish people. He says, I'm very, I have a lot of Jewish pride. I'm, I'll, I'll fight for being Jewish. He says, but I, I, don't, I don't keep Shabbat. He says, I don't eat kosher. I don't do any of this stuff. He says, I know I probably won't have Jewish grandchildren. He said, but the Orthodox said they will. So why are they demonizing them in Israel, he says to me. He says, he writes to me. It's the funniest thing. He says, I don't know. I don't care if they don't go to the army, he says to me. At least there'll be Jewish people that live worth fighting for in the next generation, he says. If nobody's studying Torah, there'll be no Jews left. That's what, that's what he, it's just, again, it's a self-described, assimilated, non-observant, conservative Jew. I'm, I'm just using his labels, so his self-applied labels. And the Gemara says, the Gemara says, they got rabbis there. Like, they still got some Jews who are sitting and learning Torah. You can't just say what the Tzirah Amar says. They have Rebbes, and the Rebbes will daven, and the Rebbes will get God. You know, the, they have, they'll have some uh, Barditchev Rebbe who will tell, who will tell, uh, they will speak good about the Jewish people and convince Hashem. You'll have a Lubavitch Rebbe who will get everybody to do tshuva. It's not going to work, he says. I'm not going to be able to do this. So what do we do? We've got a problem on our hands, Achashverosh uh, says. I don't, I don't, I don't think uh, we, can, we, we can pull the trigger just yet on this thing. So... Haman responds and he says, yeah, it's true. It's true. Amale, but Haman says that they do have rabbis. He says, but I'm echad. They're still one nation. In other words, they're still responsible for each other. So it doesn't matter if some Jews are learning Torah because if other Jews aren't learning Torah, then the Jews who are learning Torah are guilty for the Jews who aren't learning Torah. If they're Jews who do mitzvahs and Jews who are not doing mitzvahs, the Jews who are doing mitzvahs are responsible for the Jews who didn't do mitzvahs. So don't worry about it the good Jews will get swept away with what Haman called the bad Jews. Don't worry. The God will not be swayed. In other words, there's this notion of what's called arvos. There's responsibility for one another. And that is how the Gemara interprets the words. That's the subtle subtext of the words yeshno am echad. He said yeshno. They're sleeping. Like Marsha says. So he said yesh. Yesh am echad. doesn't say yesh. It says yeshno. And so why does yeshno am echad? She was a yesh, yesh am. You know, we begin to speak. Eh, there is a nation. And Achashverosh was saying, eh, what nation? A nation, a nation, a troublesome people, a nation. Instead he says, There's a, there is this nation that's one. So yesh no am echad. So the Gemara says, aha, yesh no. So yesh no means yashnu. That's the subtext. It says, there's a sleepy nation. They're comatose. That Judaism is dead and finished. And they're all one. So if there's a couple of rabbis there, that will not protect them because the rabbis themselves will be held culpable. And of course, Mordechai was. He was culpable in the sense that he did take their welfare to heart. And Mordechai did bring about a massive transformation. The Jewish people did tshuva. So Haman wasn't wrong. Only he didn't realize how things would turn out. So from the notion that we have this idea of yeshna am echad, there's this emphasis on kol yisrael arevim zelazeh, and therefore the rabbis will become guilty in everything that happens as well. Now, what did Haman just do here? Think about this. What did he just do? First of all, like the, like the Sif Sechom said right in the beginning, he said Haman over here was able to demonize the Jewish people on two levels. He right away started off by saying that this troublesome pesky nation. Oh, don't worry, God's not going to come to their aid. So he kind of threw him under a bus, spiritually speaking. And then, after he does that, he continues to speak. Now, this Am Echad, which are all responsible for each other and therefore, by default, one big failure, he says, this nation who has slept for mitzvahs, it's time to get rid of them. So Ahasuerus is going to be concerned. He doesn't say get rid of them yet, by the way. He says, uh, started off by saying, let's get rid of them. Get rid of who? Oh, this nation that's anyway weaned itself off God and no longer under his protection. So there's this nation. And it says, lest you say, uh, now Haman 
already anticipates the next question. What's Ahasuerus going to be worried about next? First thing he's worried about is place in history, his survival. So, okay, fine. From after that conversation, Haman knows what's next. What does Ahasuerus want? What does any monarch want? Okay. Economic success. He says, it's not going to be good for my country. The economy is going to tank. Every normal leader of a country, I emphasize normal, worries about the economy of a country. Abnormal ideologues who don't care about the people, the citizens of the country, but just their ideology, they take the country and destroy it. A la Venezuela. Who cares about the people if you can espouse the wonderful virtues of communism? So if you be an ideologue, who cares about what happens to the people? That's not normal. What's normal is that a leader says, I need to provide for my people. And the first responsibility of government is to provide prosperity, security and prosperity. The people should be secure and the people should be prosperous. You were elected by the people for the people. You have responsibility to them. Not to answer to your own ideas or ethos or whatever you consider to be sacrosanct. Unless, of course, you're in a communist situation where the people don't matter really. Instead, it's the way you decide the people are supposed to matter or what people should be, what people should want. And if they don't know that, we can re-educate them. Like Mao Zedong will send them to some concentration camps, re-educate them, telling them what they should want to the gulags of Siberia until they come back saying, yes, praising, singing our praises. So Ahasuerus was not, was not an ideologue. He was not motivated by some kind of ideology. Ahasuerus was, a, a, his ideology could be boiled down to one word. Hashtag me. <laughs> it's all about me. What's good for me? Good for the people is good for me. If the people are happy, they'll love me. Great, let's do it. That's it. It was all is very easy to understand. Whatever was good for him. Bad for his country, bad for prosperity, bad for security, bad for Achashverosh. Forget it. So Haman knows this. And therefore Haman anticipates the next thing Achashverosh is going to worry about. He says, Shema, Tamer, lest you say, Karcha ani secha. You say, I'm going to be creating some empty pockets, some holes in the fabric of my nation. You know, if you just like, kill people, have empty neighborhoods. We'll turn it to some drug-infested brothel area. It's, a, well, it's not, not a good idea. You can't just like kill out empty neighborhoods or, or kill out provinces. It's bad for the country. It's bad for the economy. So he says, Shemar Taymar, lest you say that they will create this karcha. Karcha means a patch. They'll create empty patches in your nation. Don't worry about it, he says. They're not even concentrated. They don't even live together. He says, this yeshno am echad, this one nation that's responsible for each other, they're mefuzor umefoyred bin amen. They're scattered here and there. They won't even stay together. They won't, they won't even defend each other. They don't even live together anymore. They don't, they don't care about each other. Don't worry about it, he says. You're not going to have this all, all huge gaping hole in the fabric of, of Persian society. Fine. You pluck them out, you know, like, 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 like gray hairs. And everything be fine. You won't know the difference. Shema Taimar Ishanominayu, but lest you say, but but the Jews have made a significant contribution to the welfare of the kingdom. They're they're good citizens, they pay the taxes. These guys are scientists and expert business people, industrialists, builders. Come on, this is not good for me. So he says, Don't don't think so. Jews may have done some things, but they are not inherently industrious people. They are not intrinsically people who are who are givers. They're just takers, they're bloodsuckers. This is like Joseph Goebbels, like straight out of Hitler's playbook. He says, Mefurad, Mefurad is a play on words, Kipredozu, like a mule. Now mules are a cross between a donkey and a horse. And the interesting thing is about mules is they cannot procreate. They do not produce offspring. He says they don't really produce anything. Jews are not productive. We don't produce. They will not, they, they may have done a few things, but they're not inherently productive. So therefore, you don't have nothing to worry about. You get rid of him, your country won't know the difference. Now, you know, if you think about it, if Hitler, wouldn't have gone after the Jews, he probably would have controlled the whole world. Why? Because a, a little scientist named Einstein would have stayed in Germany. And if Hitler had nuclear capability, can you imagine what the world would look like today? We'd all be speaking German. I mean, this guy literally could have controlled the whole world. But his hatred for the Jews was driven by an ideology that blinded him with such hate that he destroyed himself in his hatred for the Jews. So, but Haman is blinded by that kind of hatred. Ahasuerus at this point is not that, he's not blinded by his hatred. See, I, I hate him too, but like, it's not going to be good for the country. 
Don't fool yourself, he says. It'll be great for the country. These, these people are parasites and bloodsuckers. They are not inherently productive. And that's the idea of mefoyrod Amim, like a mule, like a preda, like, a, like, 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 an, like, a, like an animal that cannot procreate. Maybe you'll say they have their own country. And Jews were moving back to Israel at the time. As Nachmanani says in his introduction to Masechet Megillah, many Jews are living in Israel already. He says they, ha- they have a country, and their country is part of your kingdom. He says, don't fool yourself. He says, Talmud Leimar, the Pasuk says, So many of them don't even care about Israel. So many of them are not moving back to Israel. They're all over the place. They're all over. Don't, it's not like you'll kill the Jews who have an empty country all of a sudden. It's not the case. They're everywhere, the Jews. You kill the Jews everywhere. We just route out all the trouble and the country continues. You won't even blink, he says. You won't know the difference. Everything will be just fine. And now, he continues to make the case. So, now let me ask you a question. Is it true that the Jewish people lived all over the place? Yeah, it is true. It is true. Is it true we didn't make a contribution to society? It's ridiculous. Mordechai was a general in Achishverosh's army. He actually led an army in battle to the valor of Persia. And Mordechai now is sitting as a parliamentarian in the king's gates. He's an advisor of the king. He doesn't make a contribution. I mean, we've made contributions in every society we've lived in and every country we've lived in. There's no reason for us to assume we didn't make contributions to Persian society and civilization in its time. And of course, we became favorite citizens after the story of Purim. We had to have been giving something, but Haman had a way of delivering fake news. He took the facts and twisted them. If you twist the facts, you could present anything as you please. This is exactly what's going on today in the media, where things are twisted to form a narrative. It's like the famous uh, story told by the Dumna Magad of a man who once came to visit an archer. And he saw bullseyes everywhere. And he said to the archer, how, how did you do this? I mean, I never saw anybody who always hits the arrow right in the center, dead center, every one. So uh, I, sh- I should back up and say, somebody once asked the Magan how he has the perfect story for every situation. So the Magan said, let me tell you a story. And he told him the story about this archer, right? He says, the archer has every bullseye. So he asked him, how did you do that? So he says, simple. First I shoot the arrow, then I draw the target. <laughs> The conclusion is there before the inquiry. We know what the, what the conclusion of the article has to say. Now, how do we get there? We know that this has to be bad. It has to be bad. Why does it have to be bad? Because ideologically, it's bad. This, we don't support this. So how do we now create enough smokescreen when clearly the facts are telling a different story to obfuscate the facts or to c- create enough doubt or, or enough confusion so that at least we mitigate or blunt its impact and make sure that we still tell our story in the strongest of ways by framing it by other things and with a little bit of misinformation, but always using, I mean, news, it is news. I, I, I'm, I'm like amazed by this, like how Haman mastered the idea of fake news before anybody knew there was something called fake news. It's amazing. <laughs> it's, he's the father of this. And remember, he's selling his story. It's not like uh, the Nazis who are a totalitarian regime who were telling a story to people who didn't mind hearing the story and buying it, but like, like Ahasuerus has to be convinced of this. And he's the one who has everything to lose and actually not that much to gain. So Haman can't just make up lies. He's got he's to give him some kind of cogent logic, rhyme and reason to be able to get him to agree. So w- with regard to this notion of, of Yeshne Am Echad, that there's this, you know, this, this one nation that's Mefuzer or Mefeirid Beina Amin that's spread about through all of the different, the different um, parts of the kingdom. The, the deeper meaning of this, of course, is that the Jewish people are ultimately an Am Echad. Even when we're spread about everywhere, we still remain united. And that's actually the point. That's what's amazing about Am Yisrael, that we are a family. And that even when we look differently, and even when we behave differently, and even when we've been separated and disparate for many, many centuries, ultimately, we, we're able to come together because really we are. And what is it, Am Echad? The Am Echad is to bring the Echad of Hashem. Ba'aretz. 
The idea of Hashem Echad is Yeshna Amechad Mefuzer Mefeded. Our idea is to bring Achtos Hashem, to bring the knowledge and awareness of God consciousness and of, 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 of God's presence in all nations and wherever we are. And therefore, wherever a Yid is, Mefuzer Mefeded, and Jews, of course, live everywhere and are scattered except for the countries that will not allow us to live there while they claim to be democratic. So when we're there, what's our job? And the answer is, our job, our mission, our purpose is to remember that we are an Am Echot. An Am Echot. And we remain united. There's more that unites us than divides us. And we have to focus on those details. That's the opposite of Haman. That's, that's the true news. The real news is that we are an Am Echot. Despite the Mephuzah and Mephuzah, despite the many ideologies, despite the many different backgrounds, despite the different affiliations, despite the levels and observance or lack thereof, ultimately we really are an Am Echot. That's the real story, not the way Haman portrayed it, of course. So we have this nation. And now Haman goes in for the one-two punch. And he says, and not only are they not productive, not only will they not pose any danger in getting rid of them, there will be no big vacuum that's left. They don't fit in. They confound the development of this country. V'dasayim shenis mikolam. Their faith is different than all other faith systems. All faith systems can kind of get along. All faiths, more or less, you know, they believe in the same thing. No, not the Jewish people. They have their own rules. They play by their own ideas. They will not eat our food, he says. And not only will they not eat our food, they will not marry our women. And not only this, they will not give us their daughters to marry either. They don't want to have intermarriage. They don't want to assimilate. They don't want a melting pot. They don't want any of this. There was a famous play, a Broadway play, that was written by a Jew, and a very assimilated Jew. Somebody will remind me the name. I'll remember it. That Teddy Roosevelt himself was uh, very enthusiastic about this play. He saw the play, and he got up and was cheering. It was about uh, was like a Russian Jew who had come from the pogroms. Like he, I think he, he almost like some of the verbiage people use about melting pot. Like it, it came from this Broadway play. That's, that's where. Anyway, it was about this, this, this Cossack who was, came to kill the Jews in the shtetl and they come to America. And in the end, the Cossack marries a Jewish girl. And, and it's America, the Golden of Medina, the, the amazing place where all of the ugly biases and hatreds can be left on the other side of the ocean. And in America, we can have a true melting pot. True melting pot. It's called a melting pot. It's called a melting pot. <laughs> I told you the verbiage. Should be. What was the name of the Jew? The play by Israel Zangwell. Israel Zangwell. Uh, I knew it was somewhere in my memory. Israel Zangwell. And if you Google somewhere, you'll read about Teddy Roosevelt, President of the United States. Yes? Yeah. Attending the play and enthusiastically <laughs> clapping Zangwell on the, on the back and say, that's a play, man, or something like that. <laughs> right? That's a great play, Mr. Zangwell. That's a great play, Mr. Zangwell. Okay, see, I remember something. <laughs> That's a great play, Mr. Zangwell. The melting pot. The melting pot. This is we're all going to come together, and we're all going to be united, and we're all going to... Not the Jews. They don't, want, they don't want to assimilate. They don't want to be like us. They don't want to become part of our nation. And, and uh, you know, you've got to get rid of these people. And not only this, not only they want to do that, you think at least they're loyal subjects and citizens. No, they don't do the, the rules, the, 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 they don't do the bidding of the king. They're not loyalists either. What do they do? The mafki lechoyla shata bishahi pehi. The Gemara says this exactly. Bishahi pehi. He says. They, they find all days of the year, they find this business of Shehi is an acronym for Shabbat Hayom. And Pihi is Pesach Hayom. But the Mepharshim say that Haman in his hatred, he didn't even want to mention the name Shabbat. And he was also superstitious. He thought if he mentioned the name Shabbat, it might be like positive Jewish people. He mentions Pesach. He didn't mention the words. So he used an acronym. You know, if Achashverosh wanted, he could Google it and find out what exactly Shehi meant and Pihi meant. He says, he says that the Shahai and the Pahai, every day they come with a new story why they can't work. It's terrible for the economy. They're always taking vacations. He knew that, huh? he knew that he, he knew something about the Jews. He, of course he knew. Of 
person. You know, he, he was right in there at, the, at this point. So if you look in the Medrash, the Targum Sheni, uh, there's many versions of this Medrash, but it says there's this nation that they, all they do is they're lazy, lazy people. They take these vacations all the time. All they do is eat and drink. And now they say it's Oynik Shabbos. Now they have to pleasure themselves on Shabbos. Then they say it's Oynik Yom Then they say it's Yom He says all day they're eating and drinking and having parties. Every seven days they have a vacation. By the way, the idea of a weekend is a Jewish idea. I'm serious. It, wasn't, it didn't exist once upon a time. There's documentation in the Gemara of the Romans mocking us for being lazy, unindustrious, because we, we take off every week. Who has a vacation every week? It's a holiday once a year where people went berserk and nuts. They had the Mardi Gras once a year when dropped all inhibitions do whatever they want they went back to living and working he says every seven days every six days that's it it's Shabbos again then they have to eat and drink and sing songs and be happy and that's every seven days and every 30 days he says they have a new celebration called Rosh Chodesh another celebration some of them don't do work and, and then this, this in the month of Nisan comes spring they have a Pesach comes, a, comes the summer all of a sudden they have a, they have a Shavuot oh comes Tishrei forget about it they make a high New Year then they, they, then they stop eating then they eat again afterwards then they build this hut out there and they sing and dance in their hut he says crazy people totally unindustrious they're, they're, a, they're, they're a cancer they're eating away at the core of the, of the country with their constant desire for recreation. You got to get rid of these people. So it's really interesting. He targeted the festivals. Right? He targeted the festivals. And he said, and the, the Medr says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu said to him, You're casting an evil eye. And now we know what an evil eye means. A fake news eye. You're presenting the Yom Tif. I will throw them down before you. And I'll give them another Yom Tif. Another Yom Tif. You attack their holidays, because of you, another holiday will be added to the annual repertoire. Of course, that's the holiday of Purim. And by the way, and it's not really connected to the Gemara, but so the Rebbe explains this Medrash in an amazing way. He says, if you look at every Yom Tif, every Yom Tif has its like, central ideas, its, its central message. So on Pesach, we talk about the concept of like, freedom, of liberty, of going out of Mitzrayim. And it's, that's what it represents. Shavuos, Shavuos represents the end of the sphere to Omer it represents working through the, 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 the animal soul, elevating oneself, going from the barley to the wheat, the idea of uh, commemorating the giving of the Torah. Okay, and every Yom Tov has this idea. Shabbos has its idea. God created the world in six days, rested on the seventh. It, all, it has a specific focus. But what does Purim celebrate? Like which part of Yiddishkeit does Purim address? The Rebbe says really no part. There's no specific part. What is, what is, what is the message of Purim? It's an overriding message. It's the message of Jewish eternity. That's the message. We are. We are, and we will continue to be. Not a detail of our Yiddishkeit. It represents something overriding. And the Rebbe says, all of the Yomim Tevim have limits to the way we celebrate them. In fact, he quotes a Rambam in Hilchas Yom Tev, where the Rambam says that Simchas HaRegel, with regard to the festivities, during the holidays, you shouldn't get swept away into too much consumption of wine and, 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 and levity and lightheadedness. He says, drunkenness and uh, intoxication, laughter, lightheadedness. At some point, it's not joy anymore. It's just boisterous and empty. It's a vacuous kind of celebration. It's not meaningful. It's not serene. It's not uplifting. And that's how Rambam describes you should celebrate Yom Tov. But the same Rambam, same Rambam also says, and this is brought down in Shulchan Aruch, on Purim you're obligated to imbibe in wine until you don't know what's up or down. Until you don't know the difference in Haman In other words, that the chiyuv, that the obligation of the Simcha and Purim is to go out of all limitations. You see, because all of the other Yom Tovim represent something specific to Yom Tov. Haman tried to attack the Yom Tovim. And what was God's response to him? Not you try to attack the Yom Tovim in their individuality, in their frames. I will, because of you, provide the Jewish people with the Yom Tov, which has no limitations. The Yom Tov, which transcends rhyme and reason, and that's for us the holiday of Purim. Anyway, so but we, we're reading here the Gemara where Haman is attacking the holidays of the Jewish people. And part of the message is they're just lazy unindustrious, not interested in working, and as such, we, sh- we should get rid of them. They're of absolutely no value to Ahasuerus and to his kingdom. And he says, 
Besides, if to add insult to injury, if that wasn't enough, for the king, there is no value in keeping these people around. No value in keeping these people around, he says. And besides everything else, besides everything else, the achlu v'shasu, that all they do is eat and drink and gluttonous people, that they shame, thusly shame the kingdom. But furthermore, now Haman makes it personal. This is the ultimate fake news. Personalize it. This is called the politics of race and gender. The politics of ideology. Not the politics of somebody's right because maybe, maybe they happen to be right now. No. Somebody's right because their skin is a certain color or it's not a certain color. Somebody's right because their orientation of how they choose to live their life intimately is different. Somebody is right or wrong because, because of what? Did you listen to what they said even? Well, who cares what they said? They have to be wrong. <laughs> they, they have to be bad. That's exactly what Haman does. This is exactly what fake news does. Personalizes everything. So, gender politics. The guy is for sure bad. But, but the same Italian actress who got up at the Cannes Festival and screamed, we know who you are, and we're going to go after you, all of a sudden it turned out that she did some of the most disgusting things to a boy who she played his mother on in a movie. She literally raped a little boy who was a teenager later on. <laughs> Hello? People said, we don't know. You don't know? Do you, did you see the selfie? that she took and tweeted? I mean, you, you don't know? Well, let's get the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> benefit of that, that for this year. Why? Because the facts don't matter. It's how you present the facts. Personalize it. I, I, to me, this is just unbelievable how nothing changes. So Haman says, and this is his one-two punch to finish to drive his point home. He says, Your Majesty, do you know who these people are? Let me tell you who these people are, he says. Not only they're worthless, not only they, 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 they have no contribution to your, to, to your country, not only would their loss be a loss for none of us. Besides all of this, not only are they lazy and, and, and frivolous, beside, and not, they won't reassimilate and they won't come together with us. Besides all of this, he says to him, you should know that if a fly is to fall into their wine, what would they do? That's cheap Jews. Zerka, they'll throw out the fly and drink the wine. However, if my master, the king, if he but touches one of their glasses of wine, they'll spill it out the karka. They won't even drink out of the cup. Now he personalizes it. Of course, something called Yain Esach. We're not allowed to drink wine. Because if a Gentile held the wine for a sacramental purpose, then for us, the Torah prohibits it. So here, he personalized it. You, in their eyes, are worse than a mosquito. Wow, he says, really? They look at me as a cockroach. Now, Ahasuerus is fuming. And now he says, I'm going to get them. Really? I think that's so bad. So now it's everything, textbook is that everything he's got to do. Told him all the things he wants to hear exactly as he wants it. And so, if that's not good enough, now Haman says, If it's okay with the king, let us write letters, let's get rid of them. Let's finish them off. But he only introduces his actual plan after he makes the case for it. He doesn't say, let's kill him and here's why, because he's afraid. If he first says, let's kill him, Ahasuerus might recoil. And then if, if he recoils, he's not even listening to anything he says. So before he tells him what he wants, he first makes the case. It's brilliant. First make the case. First get him to buy in. And now that Ahasuerus has taken it personally, and he's fuming, and he's certain his economy won't suffer, and he doesn't have to be afraid of their God, now Haman says, let's get rid of him. And if that's not good enough, there's a payoff too. There's a payoff too. And he says, besides everything else, after he finishes making the case, he says, And I have 10,000 kikar of silver that I'm ready to hand over to the king. I'll pay you. The king's coffers will be enriched, not impoverished. In case there's any doubt left in Ahasuerus, cares about money at the end of the day. It's all about, it's all about the money. 
He says, don't worry. I will pay. I'm a rich man, he says. It's worth it for me. Because I honor you, your highness. I will replenish the royal coffers. If there's something missing, have no fears. Let's take a look in Rashi. We missed a bunch of Rashi's. Rashi says, They'll make these empty patches. Because there's like one province or kingdom that's full of them. He says, if you'll say Medinasa, they have a little, a little Medina, they have a little country. He says, Medina Ktana, a little country. What did the what European leader say about Israel? It's a little something country. I don't want to repeat the words. Yeah, a little country. He says, let's get rid of him, he says. We, they, they, won't, they won't marry. And Nashim Rashi says, talking about marrying the, the woman. They don't do the king's words, the king's bidding. Rashi says, When it comes to taxes and, and fees and fines, they don't pay anything. They don't pay their way. You know why they don't pay their way? They're claiming religious exemptions, <laughs> tax exemptions. Now they have to work religious freedom. I have to have a day, a day off. You know what it costs the, the country when all these Jews aren't, aren't going to work? He says, Mafgaluhu Lishata Bishihi Shabbos Ayyim Pesach Ayyim Ashes Shabbos Pesach Va Anu Asurim Mimalacha. They said, Sorry, can't work. The interesting thing is the Medrash talks about all the, all the Yom Tevim. Here he only talks about Shabbos and Pesach. So there's a big discussion about this in the Mepharshim. Why do we emphasize only on the concept of Shabbos and Pesach? And some of the Mepharshim say something very interesting. Say, anybody who's made Pesach knows that Pesach is not just eight days. It's not just eight days. People already are anxious about Pesach, okay? Pesach is like a two-month chunk out of a Jew's life. It's like, it's like your kishkas are turning like inside out already from the week before Purim, okay? Like I always beg the guy in Nofril, so like it's because they have like all the stuff comes in. Like it's like four days before Purim, and they're busy dismantling all the shalchman or something. Like, why are you doing this for? I said, oh, I head office that we have to do. I said, please. It's like the trauma is hard enough for us. Do I need to come three days before Purim and see all the pace of food out already? Like there's there's, there's wars going on and people shopping and cleaning and the, the nerves. Right? It's like say so he said, this is like a, it's like a whole focus for these people. Whole focus. It's a Shabbos, a real Jew. You know, keep Shabbos for real. Would it really be observant Jew? It's not just Shabbos. Shabbos affects everything. Shabbos says your whole week has changed. So you choose the two Yom Tevim, they have the biggest footprint. Shabbos got the biggest footprint. It affects the whole week. Now you're coming from Shabbos. Then you're going to Shabbos. Where will I be for Shabbos? <laughs> Where won't I go on Shabbos? And then there's Pesach. So, you know, like a Shavuos. Okay, eat blintzes and take a day off. It's not the two days. It's not an eight-day thing. You know, the house doesn't turn inside out. Even Rosh Hashanah, oh, fine, you have to hear some sermons, whatever, you go to Shul. It's not like, so you have a meal, but you want to really keep Pesach. Are you kidding? Nobody has a Rosh Hashanah kitchen. Nobody has a, a sukkah. A sukkah, you put up a hut, okay? It's how much anxiety goes. Four days is enough to take care. From after Yom Kippur, you can get your sukkah up and you can get your lulav and Four days is all you need. You can get the job done. <laughs> but Pesach, nobody makes Pesach in four days. Never, never happened. That's what Haman says. You see? You see, he says? A whole month already they're talking about the holiday. Anyway, he says, Shaiva. Ain't Noah. It's not nice, he says. It's not nice. He, he's the guy talking about annihilation. He says, It's not nice. <laughs> it's unbelievable. It's not nice, he says. You shouldn't even think twice. Let's get, let's get rid of him. So the Gemara says. That uh, at this point, Shlokesh uh, interjects, Amr Shlokesh, Shlokesh says, It was open and known before Hashem, God knew that Haman would come to seal the deal with shekels. And so, Al Yisrael, as if to pay ransom for Israel, and that's why God first preempted the shekels of the Jewish people to the shekel of Shulhaman, to the shekels of Haman. This is the meaning of what we learned. Already on the first day of Adar, we're talking about the shekels. Now this, of course, could mean a number of things. It could mean that we're talking about the shekels at that time, which means they either gave machzitz shekel and people query. Seventy years after the Beis HaMegash was true, why were they giving machzitz shekel? The Hassam Sefer says something unbelievable. He says, reading Parsha Shkolem, the fact that they were talking about the shekels already from the beginning of Adar, that in and of itself was a merit to shield them from the shekels of Haman. 
just talking about the mitzvah, just reading about the mitzvah. Others maintain that it was the concept of giving machsa shekel. People would give a half a shekel symbolically, as we do today, connecting it to Purim, but even then they would give symbolically a half a shekel. So we have a Mishnah that says, Be'echad ba'adar, the Bezdin already begins to get to work, to deal with, since the earth is waking up in Israel, and you have fresh growth, and you can have different grains that are mixed together, which the Torah prohibits, the Bezdin has a, a responsibility of enforcing the agricultural laws in the land of Israel. So this already, on the first day, beginning of other, this is when the messages start to go out. And here, Haman is trying to destroy the people on the 13th of Adar. So before the 13th, we have the idea of shekels. Or it could be argued that long before Haman is already on the 13th day of Nisan, long before, six weeks ago, seven weeks ago, we already were talking about shekelim. And of course, in a broader sense, this means going back to the shekels of the time of Moshe Rabbeinu. Although the Gemara doesn't say that openly. Bezdin announces they should bring Shkalim to Migdash. The last Rashi on the page. Now things have grown a little. It's already in Israel. Time you get to beginning of Adar, getting to spring. So you could start to see you start to uproot anything which is inappropriate, growing unlawfully in the land of Israel, gets uprooted from this point and onward. So some of the Mepharshim talk about this idea and they say that, that uh, this the Marsha says, no, we're talking about the actual shekels that the Jewish people gave in the desert, the 600,000 people who were counted through Shkolem in the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, with which the Adonim, with which the foundations of the Mishkan boards were, 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 were placed or built. That's the Marsha says. And this is similar to the concept of what we learned about in the previous class in the Gemara of Magdim Refuel Maka, that Hashem always brings the healing before He brings the injury. So, so it, you see here, Haman was bringing shekels. God says, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, already, I already got them on shekels before. We, we, we've been doing shkolem long, long, long ago. Now, some people maintain that this is because of the schus, the merit of tzedakah. But really, that's not what it says. It doesn't say the schus of tzedakah. It says the, the schus of, of, of the shekel specifically. And the Rebbe once asked, what is the interconnection between the shkolim of all things? I mean, you get half a buck, big deal. Why, what's the connection between that and the concept of saving from the gzeda, from the decree of Haman? And he says that one of the unique things about Haman's time was that there was a gzeda, a decree against the Jewish people in equanimity. Everybody was equally targeted. It says, Minar v'adzokin, young and old, taf v'nashim. Children, women, nothing made a difference. No gender, no age, nothing. Everybody was targeted equally. Every Jew was going to be killed. And this is not like other generations. For example, he says the Pharaoh, who did he decree against? Against the babies. He threw the babies into the river. And he wanted only the male babies, not the female babies. You know, Stalin, Yemach Shemo, what did he want? He didn't care if old people came to Shul. He didn't want any children in Shul. He didn't want a Jewish future. So well, the old people, they could still, don't teach your children about it though. But here, there was an equal decree. Haman didn't care. Everybody. Everybody was equal. So what's the, how do we nullify a decree like that? The Rebbe says, Machsas HaShekel emphasizes the concept of equality. Everybody giving exactly the same amount. Whether you're rich or poor, whether you're deeply observant, learned and experienced, or totally unaffiliated, you have to give the same half shekel. Not more and not less. So therefore, what does this mitzvah really represent? It represents, it represents the fact that ultimately every year is equally important, that every year is but a half to be completed by Hashem. Every one of us is the same amount. It's exactly the same amount. From the most famous Jew to the most forgotten Jew. Everybody had to give exactly half a shekel, no more, no less. And this is how the mitzvah of the shkolim, it's not just a shekel, shekel play. It's the, the shekel represents Haman's decree. Haman's decree was on all Jews equally. And this is the mitzvah was performed by all Jews equally. And so that's why it serves as the counterweight against this decree of Haman at the time. And... And this is how Haman began his uh, conversation, so to speak, with Achashverosh. And Achashverosh went right along with this. He was, he, was, he was okay. Another interesting thing about the business of Machsa Shekel, the Rebbe says that what happened with those shekels? 
What, what, what did they use those machs shekel for? For the foundation, for the silver sockets that the boards were inserted into. And ultimately, Haman wanted to kill all of the Jewish people. What did Mordechai awaken? The Pintaliyad, which is the foundation. The foundation, not the big tall building, not the structure, not the development, but the foundation. The foundation everybody has that's equal. And so the foundation didn't have, didn't, it was exact, everything was exactly uniform. Just silver sockets. And that essence of the Jewish people is what the Shkalim were used for. So this is like the deeper meaning, a deeper, what we would call messaging, the deeper, the deeper representation of the Shkalim of Haman versus the Shkalim of Moshe Rabbeinu, or the Shkalim even that the Jewish people subsequently gave. I'm following the idea of Moshe Rabbeinu, like Marsha says, but in, in broader you could expand this. You know, the idea of old Jews giving half a shekel was not only the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, but ultimately going forward also. So Haman, Haman paid off the king, and at this point, the king turns around and he says, wink, wink, you got a deal. Let's have lunch. Want to see you all over or before Wanasi, the original Wanasi, let's have lunch. And Haman and the king sat down to drink, happy, satisfied that they had finally found a solution to the Jewish problem. And with this, we will conclude on the very, very bottom of Dafyud Gimel, Amid Beis, in which we have the uh, king and Haman now striking an agreement where Hamelech says to Haman, the Kesef, keep the money, he says. And here we see what kind of anti-Semite he was. He loved money, but he said, you know what? I don't even need the money. Ha'om, the nation, ketoiv be'necha. Do as you please. And now, we could have some dramatic music. This is where the official decree of the pre-Purim era, this is where the dark clouds have now fully formed and the plot is hatched to be continued. Mm.